Hey everybody, how are you? Kim has already exercised you on this. How are you? Yes, of course you are. I'm glad to be here with you. That song makes me want to dance. Anyway, um, this is a great, great weekend. We're closing out the series called Pursued, but it's a, it's a great weekend for other reasons. This weekend we are celebrating the fifth anniversary of our Lockport campus. They've been around for five years. Thank you. Yeah. Pastor Brian and his team have done an incredible job there. They are a force for the gospel in the Joliet-Lockport-Plainfield area, and we couldn't be happier with what's going on there. Now, you might be new to Parkview, and you've been here for a little while, and you've heard us talk about Lockport. You've heard us talk about some of the other parts of who we are. Maybe you're trying to figure out, what do I do now? Like, I want to get more involved in this place. What's my first step to do that? And the first step that you can take is something called What We Believe. It's a class we offer, both at our Orland and Lockport campuses. If you're newer here and you haven't done on this yet, I would definitely suggest that you jump in and try this. Register online, and if you want to bring kids, please register and tell us, because if not, we're just going to let them run around and do whatever they want. So if you've ever seen children do that, it's, it's chaos. Uh, so register for that. Now, maybe you've already done that, and now you're thinking, well, I want to know what's the future. What's going to happen next? What's coming down the road? Well, for that, PT has a message for you, so take a listen. Hey guys, uh, I'm with our elders on Elders Retreat this weekend to do a little planning and dreaming for the future. Just want to let you know that next weekend, we've got a big vision weekend. Um, we're going to talk about all the things that have happened around here and, and what God's doing. I've got a lot of stuff to, to unload on you. It's just always a positive time to come and think about the future and what, what God's doing, and it, it's totally amazing. And then we start the Y Series. I want to in, encourage you to, to get somebody, to invite some people to come to the Y Series. Why God? Do it, why do we believe? in God? Why, why, why am I not an atheist? Why should I believe in Jesus? Why, why is there suffering? Why the Bible? Why is this science thing going on? You know, why is there a problem between science and the Bible? Which, by the way, Lee Strobel is going to come in and do, the guy who wrote Case for the Creator and the Case for Christ. We're also going to have a week on baptism, November 3rd, if you haven't done that yet. Why do we do baptism? I'm going to answer all the questions of the universe in the next six weeks. Don't miss it. So that's happening. So please follow the directions, bring some people in, and jump on that. I think one of the most interesting questions is to think about what's going to become of what's happening right now. When we launched the Lockport campus, we didn't have any idea what was going to happen. We trusted God that he wanted us to do that, and, but we had no idea what it was going to become. Anytime you start something new, whether it's a new job or a new relationship or a new workout program or a new diet or a new television show, whatever it is, anytime you start something new, you always have this thought, what is this going to become? I remember having this question when my daughter was a baby and we, you know, looked over her in her crib as she's sleeping and she's little and, you know, all that stuff. And we're thinking to ourselves, what is she going to become? Now, selfishly, I hope she becomes something that's going to pay for my retirement and help me to play golf for the rest of my life. And, you know, we wanted her to become faster and smarter and taller and better than all the other children, all those, all those selfish parent things. But ultimately, when you look at a kid, a little, little baby, you, you have no idea what they're going to become. Let me just give you a little example of this, an experiment. So here's a baby picture. Pretty cute kid, right? Looks like, you know, kind of a devilish smile, like he might get into some trouble. And you never know what this kid is going to become, but we do know who this kid became because he became this person. Okay, not bad, right? Adopt a village of people, yeah. Now, let's look at this one. Here's another little girl. She looks spunky, a lot of energy. Do you know who she became? She became this person. So this little girl transitions. Here's my favorite one, though. I think this one is tremendous. Yeah, this little guy. 
And, and it's hard to tell, and I know you can't really see the resemblance, but this is who he became. <laughs> you can see the fingers going for the ears, right? Yeah. So all of those people actually, you know, achieved their potential. They became something. But I'm sure that the mother of a serial killer doesn't look over the baby in her crib and go, I think he's going to become something awful. We all look at this and we all look at what, what's, what could happen next and we look at it with optimism, we look at it with hope. We look at our children hoping and believing something as good is going to happen. Well, in the book of Hosea, God looks over his children, Israel, and he says, they haven't become what I wanted them to become. They haven't become the people that I made them to, that I loved them to become, and so I have to go after them. And the way he goes after them in this series pursued that we've been doing, it's about the story of an Old Testament book called Hosea, where Hosea the prophet is called to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. I'm not making that up. That's really her name, Gomer. He goes and marries her. He has children with her. She returns back to the life of prostitution, and he actually has to go and buy her back from her pimp, bring her back to his house, help her to become his wife. But at the end of this story, there are some unanswered questions, and the one unanswered question is, what became of Gomer? Bigger question, what became of Israel? Did they see this example of their unfaithfulness to God and did they return? Did they come running back to him at the end? That's the question we have to answer. What will Gomer become? What will Israel become? And more importantly, what will we become when the God who is pursuing us catches up with us and we say, all right, because of your grace, I want you to rescue me. What happens next? Because it's not just about being found by God, and it's not just about finding Jesus. There's the story of the street evangelist, and he had had a really bad day. Nobody was listening to him. He was trying to, you know, yell at people and convert them into believing in Jesus, and nobody wanted any part of that, and they'd actually thrown stuff at him. It had been a really bad day, and so he's walking down the street, and he sees this guy completely drunk laying over on the side of the road. And so he says, you know what? They don't have to agree for me to convert them. So he goes and he grabs this guy by the jacket and he drags him down to the river. He drags him into the river. He says, I'm just going to baptize this guy and I'll put this in the wind column. So he throw, puts him under the water and holds him down a little bit, pulls him back up and he looks at him and he says, did you find Jesus? And the guy's finally coming to and he's like, no, no. And he dunks him again, holds him down a little bit longer this time, pulls him back up and says, listen, did you find Jesus? And he goes, no, no. And now he's getting irritated and he's coming around. He dunks him again a little longer this time too, pulls him back up and says, did you find Jesus? And the guy goes, no, are you sure this is where he fell in? This is, this is not just about finding Jesus. This is not just about having some kind of religious affiliation. This is about something much bigger. And Hosea actually talks about it in chapter 10. Listen to what he says. He says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Hosea brings out a new word picture, a new metaphor, and that is for planting and growing seeds. Now, if you've grown anything before, if you've planted seeds, you realize that you get a seed and it doesn't look like very much. It's little, it's kind of ugly, and you get it in a packet that shows you a picture of what it's going to be like one day. So you get a tomato seed, and it's this tiny sort of insignificant thing, but if you put it in the ground and you, and you plant it and you care for it and you water it and you fertilize it, soon it's going to grow into this big, luscious, ripe red tomato you know, slice it real thin, put it on a sandwich with some mayonnaise, <laughs> some bacon. <laughs> anyway, um, sorry, I got lost there for just a second. 
What they have there, it's a vision. You don't plant that seed because the seed is attractive. You plant that seed because you want the tomato. You want the result, the fruit of that seed that you plant is what you're looking for. Now, this whole planting and growing thing isn't a, isn't a short-term thing. It's a long-term thing. This is what Judd Wilhite says in his book, Pursuit. He says, the process of growing with God is not simply a straight line where a person goes from being bad to better. It's not like Gomer was a prostitute, and then she had a makeover and a new hairstyle and some designer clothes, and then she rides off into the sunset together with Hosea to live happily ever after. This isn't Cinderella. This is a story about the grit of real life. In Hosea's story, Israel needed their ground to be plowed up. They needed the blade of the plow to break them into pieces so God could plant some new seeds in them, so they could plant some new seeds and see new fruit come in their life. So many of us, we don't turn to God until that is already happening in us. When life has hit rock bottom, when the plow has been striking the soil and turning us up and churning us under, and finally we feel so uncomfortable because things that were are not as they used to be, and we are feeling a significant amount of pain at that. And so we turn to them. And the interesting thing in this passage is that Hosea uses a word righteousness. Now that word's got a lot of baggage. Do you think of righteousness, you think of people who are holier than thou. You think of them as they've got a lot of church you know, participation. They're in every event. They do all kinds of stuff. But that's not what that word means. What that word means is made right or set right. That's what that word means. And so what Hosea is saying is, This is not about you having a better church attendance or more religious stuff in your life. It's about you living a life of being made right. So when you read this word, don't read righteousness anymore. Read made rightness. That's what he's talking about. That's the life that God is calling us to. And this made rightness, here's what I want you to remember, is living like a person who has been pursued and captured by God. He's saying once God has chased you and you have found him, there's a life after that, a life of being set right and made right and living right with him. And the text talks about planting seeds because that life takes time and energy and work to cultivate it. Even now today when we've got these hybrid seeds that people plant and they grow these crazy vegetables kind of like this one. You seen a pumpkin like that before? You know what I'm thinking when I see that? Pie for life. Yes. It's getting close to Thanksgiving. I'm feeling it. It's, I think that pumpkin could take me in a fight. Even stuff like that that grows so big and so fast, it takes time. It takes work to cultivate the soil to see good seeds grow. It takes care and it takes effort. Now, Israel has been planting seeds all the way along, and we have been planting seeds with our life all the way along. Listen to what Hosea says. He says, You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice because you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way. Hosea is basically saying, You're harvesting exactly what you've planted. We don't have great seeds if we're doing this on our own. If we're planting our own seeds, we shouldn't expect to reap a harvest of stuff that's good for us. Hosea is saying, you're getting exactly what you've planted into the ground. And the Bible scholars say this about the passage. He says, the entire process from plowing to eating has gone sour, presumably because the sowing was done with the wrong seed. And there's some truth to that. There's a two-sided thing going on here. We are planting the wrong seeds, expecting good stuff to grow. We are planting tomatoes and expecting to get squash out of it. It just doesn't work that way. We're planting seeds of anger and expecting a life of peace. Planting seeds of anxiety and expecting a life, a life of rest and comfort. We need to learn and understand how to plant the seeds of this made right life. What we need is a bigger vision. 
We need a bigger vision of what life could possibly be. And what's happening in Hosea is he's constantly presenting this to Israel. He's presenting a vision of a God who will chase them no matter where they will go, of a God who will forgive them and love them deeply, a God who will discipline them because he loves them. And today we get one more thing, the kind of God who will help them find life by planting the right seeds. You get the fruit in your life of the seeds that you plant. And that's why I think it's amazing that Jesus picks up on this in the Gospels. In one of my favorite passages in John chapter 15, he says this, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So many times in our life, we try to do everything on our own. And what Jesus says is, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't plant the right seeds without some help. Because this whole process has gone bad. It's gone wrong. So that's why I'm chasing you. Not just to find you, not just so I can have you as my own, but so that I can help you live as if you are my own. So if you stay in me, remain in me, abide in me, I will give you a vision of life that's bigger than anything you could possibly ever imagine for yourself. Now I have to clarify a little bit because there's a part in this passage that can be taken wrong. So Jesus says, ask anything you want in my name and it will be given to you. Now, you could take that too far, because there's some stuff that I want that Jesus doesn't want for me. He knows it's not going to be good for me, right? Like, I'd like to be taller. Just, you know, I've talked about this, but I'd like to be just a skitch taller. I'd like to be faster. You know, I'd like to be able to wear skinny jeans. I don't know. There's a lot of things I'd like to be able to do. Those things may not be good for me. And matter of fact, the skinny jean things may not be good for anybody else either. There are a lot of things that are not good for me, but he gives us two ifs in this passage that are very important. He says, if you remain in me and if my words abide in you, then whatever you ask will be added to you. And you know why he says that? Because if we remain and abide in Jesus, anything else we might ask for suddenly starts to look unimportant. Because once we are in Jesus, we see the world through that lens. We realize I've got everything that I need right here. So what can I ask for? that I don't already have. That's what happens when you get caught up in a vision. We were picnicking in New Buffalo, Michigan not too long ago. My wife and my daughter and I, uh, we, we went up with this intention. So we brought a picnic lunch. We bought some chicken. My, you know, my daughter and my wife went to the store and picked out this chicken. And she was very excited about it. And some watermelon and some other really good tasting stuff. So we're going to do that. And then we're going to go out to a place called Oink's Dutch Treat. Anybody familiar with Oink's? A great ice cream place. If you never, They don't pay me to say this, but if you've never been there, it's a fantastic ice cream place. So we decided dinner, ice cream, awesome day. And as we're sitting there at the beach, the, the clouds start to roll in. Big black clouds. It's not like it's a threat. It's, it's going to be a reality. And so we look at each other and we're like, I don't want to sit in the rain and eat picnic food. That is just not a pleasant thing. And my wife says, yes, because she's smart. And so we're sitting there and we're like, what are we going to do about this? So we decide that we're going to be the greatest parents in the history of the free world. So we go to our daughter and we say, Bailey, listen, it's going to start raining. So what if we did this? Now, we are expecting at the next phrase, fireworks, applause, weeping and joy. And we say, what if we just skipped dinner and went straight to ice cream? 
And we're waiting for it, right? We're paused, waiting for her to call us, everything we've wanted her to call us, the greatest parents who've ever lived. You are a blessing to my life, mother and father. You've given me hope and joy and peace and pace, all the good things that I could possibly want. You have given them to me right now. But that's not what happened. She looked at us and she said, no. And so I took her temperature and I'm like, you okay? What do you mean no? She's like, no. I want my chicken. And I thought, seriously, ice cream versus chicken. I want my chicken. I picked it out. I saw it. It looks good. I want my chicken. So we packed her in the car, and we took her to a child psychologist, had her talk to her. She's fine, so, you know, praise for that. She's all right. But what happened was she got consumed by a vision. It was chicken or nothing. It doesn't matter how creamy or good or or wonderful or filled with chocolate chips that other thing might be. I'm so consumed with the vision of chicken, I don't want anything else but that. And you know, that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, once you get a hold and consumed by the vision of what life could be with me, it doesn't matter how good tasting, satisfying, sexy, or gratifying anything else might be. There's nothing else that pales, everything else pales in comparison compared to me. That's the vision for your life. You plant seeds with me, it will grow into fruit that's better than anything else you could possibly ask for. And as a matter of fact, the other thing that happens is, is that remaining in Jesus is the way we plant and sow seeds of this made rightness. We want to live that kind of life, we remain in Jesus and we plant those good seeds. But once we decide that we love this vision, that we're falling in love with this vision, we have a decision to make. Gomer had a decision to make. Israel had a decision to make, and it was this. It says in the scriptures, return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. So we have to ask the question, do I really want to go after this God with this vision for my life, this God who pursues me and loves me, or do I want to keep trying to hack it out and plant my own seeds? Because we do have to make that decision at some point. But we've got to remember, Jesus has said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we're going to do it, but it may not be good and probably going to hurt us in the end. The real lasting and good fruit of life comes from following the one who knows exactly what seeds need to be planted. There's a funny thing to me about Jesus. Not funny like haha, but curious funny. The funny thing to me about Jesus is he walked around and he saw people and he just said, follow me. And they went, okay. And they followed him. Like he didn't have a brochure or a website or an elevator speech. He didn't pitch them anything. He didn't have a marketing guy. He didn't have a PR guy. He walked up to them and he said, follow me. And they, they said, oh, okay. And they lived with him for a year and they watched him do all this. And his disciples stayed with him for three years. They watched what he did. They listened to what he taught. They saw the look in his eyes and they followed him wherever and they gave up their lives for him. Without a speech, without marketing, without selling it. How did he do that? I think they looked at Jesus and said, this guy gets it. In his eyes, in his words, in his actions, Jesus gets it. There is a reason that non-Christian people will say, Jesus, I'm all right with him. There's a reason that people who don't go to church would say, I think if you could model your life after him, he would be the most amazing person in the world. Gandhi even said, I'm not a Christian, but I love Jesus. Why did he do that? Because I think we all deep inside understand that Jesus gets it. Show of hands for a second here. Now I know it's church, and you feel like if I'm asking a question about Jesus, you're supposed to say yes, but that's not how this one works. I want you to be honest. How many of you believe that Jesus lived the best life ever? believe some, okay, some of you are like, eh, I'm not so sure. I think he lived the best life ever. Think about it. He played with kids all the time. 
He was relaxed. He was comfortable. When people came to him and tried to kill him, he received them peacefully and returned peace back to them. Jesus knew how to party. He knew how to celebrate. He knew how to live life in such a way that he brought joy and goodness in every person that he came into contact with. Jesus lived the best life ever. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, I know you're the pastor and everything, but I feel like I have to mention to you, there was that whole Easter thing that happened that didn't seem like it was so incredibly great. Casey, do you, do you know what actually happened at Easter? And I would say, well, of course I know what happened at Easter. I got all my Bible training from Jim Gaffigan. Take a look. Easter, that's a weird tradition. Easter, the day Jesus rose from the dead, what should we do? How about eggs? Well, what does that have to do with Jesus? All right, we'll hide them. I don't, I don't follow your logic. Don't worry, there's a bunny. Of course I know what happened at Easter. I know that Jesus was killed in a horrible and executed in a horrible way. I get that. But here's what I also know. I know that three days after that, Jesus rose again from the dead. I know that a man, a man in flesh, was killed and then was raised from the dead. That has never happened since in history. It only happened one time before then, and Jesus is the one who did it. Yes, he died. But then he rose, and that changed the whole script. Because here's what Scripture tells us. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now this is a vision. A vision not only of the guy who lived the best life ever, but a vision of a guy who rose from the dead and kicked death in the teeth on the way out and said, my people will never have to fear you again, ever. And so if Jesus rose from the dead in the same power, the same spirit that rose him from the dead is living in us, there's nothing that's going to happen in our everyday life that he can't take care of. If you beat death, everything else is cream cheese. Don't you think? So now the spirit that lives within us says, here's the deal. There's nothing you're going to face in your life. There's no seeds you need to plant in your life that aren't possible for me. So remain in me, stay in me, and the power that rose me from the dead will be with you and go with you and help you to do all the things that you need to do. So the question is, are you ready to accept the vision of the Jesus who died to forgive us of our sins but rose to give us the life that we need? This death thing was all about setting us right with God, but the resurrection thing was all about helping us to live set right with God. That is the greatest vision for human life that has ever been put down on paper, and I am inviting you to live it starting today. But even if you decide to accept that vision and start planting those seeds, there's still a practical question. We don't always get practical at church, so I want to get practical on you if I can. How many of you remember the 2007 Super Bowl? Anybody? A few of you remember it because there was a local team involved, um, two local teams technically involved in this whole shindig. Uh, they were down in Florida, and the whole week before, they were forecasting massive rainstorms for the game. And if you remember the game, it was a soggy mess. And if you remember the game, you also remember that the water caused several turnovers, interceptions and fumbles and things like that. And one team came out looking like they handled it better than the others. I'm not going to tell you who that team was because it just hurts. But I want to go back to that week 
Because the week before the game, something happened. Peyton Manning, the quarterback for the Colts, saw the weather report and he said, I have a vision. Well, I don't know if Peyton actually said that. I wasn't there. But let's just assume that that's what Peyton said. He said, I have a vision. I would like to go into the Super Bowl game and not lose a football because it's wet. And so he took a trash bag and he filled it up with water and he loaded it up with footballs. And he took his center, Jeff Saturday, and they went out on the field and he asked Jeff to start snapping him these wet footballs over and over and over again. So for hours they practiced with these wet footballs until Peyton felt like he had a grip. I can take it, I can hold it, I can throw it, and I can not lose control of it. He had a vision that I don't want to be in that game and lose any turnovers. And he did a great job of it. This guy, however, did not do a great job of it, sadly. I hate to remind you of the Rex Grossman years. So he had a vision. This is what I want to see happen. This is exactly how all of human transformation happens. We get a vision of what we'd like to see happen. If we'd like to be like Jesus, we get a vision of how Jesus did things, and then we train ourselves to do that. So let's take a vote. And again, this is all self-disclosure here, but how many of you would say you deal with anger on a regular basis? It's honesty time. What happens in Parkview stays in Parkview, okay? (laughs) Maybe you say you deal with anger. Do you ever notice Jesus never dealt with anger? Jesus never was out of control angry. Yes, he got frustrated. Yes, he got irritated. He hung out with the disciples. That's just going to happen because those guys were boneheads. He got upset, but he never let anger control his life. And many of you, if you raised your hand saying you dealt with anger, it's because anger has become out of control at times in your life. And now it's becoming an obstacle to you living a life of goodness and truth. It's become an obstacle to you and your family and to people that you are with. That's why you raised your hand. But Jesus never got out of control on anger. As a matter of fact, here's what he taught on anger. He said, you have heard it said that the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus is not saying you can't get angry. He's saying a lifestyle of anger will lead to your destruction just as much as a lifestyle of murder. It has a corrosive effect on your soul. And the reason you raised your hand is because you're starting to feel that and to understand that. So if Jesus lived without anger, and he teaches us to live without anger, that means he'll give us the ability to do it. Anything that Jesus said or taught, you can do, because the power that raised him from the dead is living in you, so that you can become a person who lives without anger. So here's the question for you. Would you like to live without anger? That's where it begins. Would you like that? If you would like that, Jesus said, you can do everything that I have commanded you to do. But you got to start. you got to start small. First of all, stop trying not to be angry. Can I just give you a little blanket statement? Stop trying not to be angry. You know why? Here's what happens. You stop trying. People have given you that advice. Why don't you just stop trying to, just stop being angry about that. Problem is, is that you you try not to be angry, and then you get angry that you're not not being angry. Do you see how this goes? And then you get frustrated that you're not being angry because the people told you not to be, and then it's just a vicious cycle. So you either get guilty about it and give up, or you start to say, maybe God just made me this way, and I'm a bad seed. But that's not what it's about. It's about training ourselves in small ways to defeat anger in our lives. Here's one way you can do it. Unplug for eight hours. Take an eight-hour period and unplug from technology and from any work that leads to an outcome. Do things simply for the enjoyment of doing them. Read a meaningless book. Play a game with a child. Take a nap. You're like, these are spiritual things. They are very spiritual things. 
Jesus might be calling you to take a nap. If you've seen yourself lately, you might need a nap. Jesus may be calling you to do that, to unplug, to take a nap. Because here's what happens. Anger comes from us believing that we are in control of the world. And we are not in control of the world. We are not built to control the world. Our minds have got to be changed about this. Some of us believe that if we unplug from work for a while, the cosmos is literally going to fall apart. That's where workaholic stuff comes from, is the belief that if I'm not producing something, I have no value. And God is saying, I got this. I've been controlling the world since long before you were born, and after you're gone, I'm going to continue to do it. Listen to what Jesus says about it. He says, we've got to get our brain changed about this. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We've got to stop worrying about controlling the world, and the one best way to do it is to stop trying to control the world. And when we do that, our anger will begin to decelerate quickly. Because we lean into the one who is truly in control of the world. So take eight hours, unplug, do something of value. And I promise you, when you come back to life, all the planets will still be in orbit. Because God's saying, I got this. I got this. Now, some of you are going, that sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? It sounds like that Sabbath thing in the Old Testament. You know what? You're right. It is that Sabbath thing. And the whole point of that Sabbath thing was for God to remind people, I'm God and you are not. So let's live like that's the case. But you may be saying, well, it's an Old Testament thing. I don't have to do it. That's not true because Jesus talks about it. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying this thing belongs to me now. And so I'm giving it to you as a gift so that you can live a life free from anger and anxiety and stress and and overwork and control the world if you just live into it for eight hours and unplug and let me show you how much of the world I'm in control of. So that's one way to do it. Here's the second way to do it. Go to Jewel or Dominic's or Best Buy or wherever you shop a lot. Find the checkout lines. Find the longest checkout line. Get in the back of it. Find the one where the person's writing the check at the front. Or find the one where the person's got the jar of pennies and they're like, what is that, 150? Okay, one, two, three. Find that line. And when you're standing in the back of it, start letting people in front of you as you're standing there. Because what that does is it takes away your ability to manipulate and control what's going on ahead of you. And while you're standing there, breaking out in hives, ask God... Why is it that I'm so angry about this? I was talking to somebody backstage about this, and they said, that happens all the time. I want to pay for that person's stuff just so they'll get out of my way. (laughs) And there's God speaking gently. Do you realize whether they go faster or not, it's not going to change your life. You're going to make it wherever you're going in perfect amount of time, but right now, you could let me change you. Let me transform you. Let me plant the seeds of peace and rest in you if you just let me do it. Train yourself to do it. Now, I know what some of you might be saying. I don't believe in all this. I think you just pray and you ask God to change you and then God does it. Well, first of all, if that's you and somebody around you raised their hand and said they dealt with anger, why don't you ask them how that's going for them? Have a feeling they'll tell you it's not going so well. And Judd Wilhite says this, there's there's an active role we play. He says there is a mystery to our spiritual formation. On the one hand, God does the work. On the other hand, we are called and responsible to cooperate with God. 
to press on. We simply can't lie in bed all day and say, God, restore me and expect it to happen. We must cultivate our life with God. So here's a question. What kind of fruit is coming out of your life? What kind of fruit is growing in your life today? What kind of seeds are you planting? Would you like to plant the seeds of a bigger vision of living like Jesus? I was talking to a counselor this week, and uh, he's a very effective counselor, and I said, how do you, how do you help people change their lives? Because that's, that's important to me. How do you help people change their lives? He said, I just asked him two very simple questions. The first one is, do you want to get well? And I said, well, they're in your office. Isn't that kind of a sign? <laughs> like they showed up. Isn't that enough? And he said, no. I have to ask them, yeah, you're here, but do you really want to get well? Do you really want to live without anger? Do you really want to live without greed and lust and anxiousness and all that other stuff, without lying? Would you really like to live without that? And he said, the second question is more important. What are you willing to give up in order to be well? What are you willing to put to death so that you can be well? So you can plant the seeds of this bigger vision, of this bigger life that God has in store for all of us. Are you willing to go get in the back of the line at Jewel, break out into hives, sweat like crazy, and at the end have a little more peace? Are you willing to spend some time reading Scripture so your brain gets changed about who's really in control of the world? Do you want to be well? And what are you willing to do to see that vision of Jesus come true? One of my greatest human heroes of the faith is a man named Rich Mullins. Rich was probably the most successful Christian songwriter in the history of Christian music. But what captivates me about Rich is not his music. His music is fantastic. His lyrics are incredible. What captivates me about Rich is his life. Rich died in 1996 in a tragic car accident, actually near Effingham, Illinois, not too far away. And after he died, they wrote a book about his life, a biography called An Arrow Pointed Toward Heaven. It is one of my top three favorite books of all time. And the reason why is because as I read it, As I read it, I began to see Rich as not just a songwriter, but as a man who had this all-consuming vision for what life could be. This all-consuming vision for becoming like Jesus. Being as successful as he was, Rich made well over $2 million in his life just from royalties on his songs. But he never had it. He never had a dime of it. He had every royalty check sent to an attorney who would send him every month the wages of a day laborer in his community. Rich moved into a trailer on the outskirts of a Native American reservation and spent his entire life from there on giving himself to the poor children in that community because Rich said it would be better for me to be where Jesus would be if he was here than to do anything else, than to live with all this money, than to live with all this stuff and all this recognition. I'd rather be among the children because that's where Jesus would be. Now, I'm not saying you got to give everything up and go move to a reservation and, and, you know, live in a trailer. I'm not saying that. I want you to capture the vision, the vision of how beautiful, good, and true it could be to actually become like Jesus. And I thought there's no better way for us to begin to feel that vision sink into us than to hear the words of one of Rich's most powerful songs. And it's a song about communion. So as we prepare ourselves for this, for this communion meal, I want you to grab a hold of that vision. Is being like Jesus better than where you are right now? Did you know you can become like him? Anything he told you to do, you can do. Would you like that? Do you want to get well? And what are you willing to give it up? 
to get there. I'm getting ready for communion now. And Rich knew that peace, the peace that came from being like Jesus as much as he could. And now he knows it completely. And you can start to know it more today. One of the ways that we remind ourselves about this every week is when we take communion. And the blood, the juice, reminds us that our sins are forgiven. So if you're here and you, you have no relationship with Jesus, he's saying, you know, I can, I, can, I can put that stuff in your past away. I can put it to death. I can bury it. You don't have to wear the guilt of that anymore. I will save you from your old self. But the bread, the bread's about Jesus' body. This body that he lived in while he was here, where he showed us, this is what life is supposed to look like. Here's the old dead stuff that's gone. This is what the new alive stuff is supposed to look like. So when they pass the trays across, there are two cups, one inside the other, bread in the bottom, juice in the top. Take them both and hold them. We'll take communion together. You don't have to be a part of Parkview. If you believe in Jesus, we welcome you to this table. Let's pray together. Father, now this gift of your bread and your, your wine, as Rich said, your blood and your body, let it fill us. And let us, let us have an honest conversation with you about the kind of seeds that are being planted in our life, the kind of fruit we're seeing in our life. And if it's not, what's, it's not keeping us alive, if it's not giving us hope and life, then Father, help us to turn over the planting business to you, to abide in you, to remain in you that you may bring good fruit out of our lives. Thank you for the opportunity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.